Welcome to Embargoed, the initial podcast episode. The very first one. A podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike, of which we are not yeah, those. We don't fit into either of those categories. I'm one really. of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Tim O'Toole. What's up, Tim? What's up, Brian? Um, we're very excited to be here uh, launching Embargoed. Um, we uh, are going to give a quick overview before we jump in because we got a lot to cover. This is actually uh, part one of two for our initial um, episode here. Um, and for those interested out in the world, there is a teaser trailer on YouTube, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast Go content. find it, follow us. Yeah, you know. exactly. Um, so we won't rehash everything, but just very quickly to let you all know uh, who we are, what we're doing, and what we're going to be covering on this podcast. Um, Tim and I are both um, members at the law firm Miller and Chevalier here in Washington, D.C. We're international trade lawyers, uh, and that obviously is what we're here to talk about, uh, all things international trade. Um, and we're disclaimer, we are not here giving legal advice. We're not going to be talking about anything confidential that we've learned from our clients. We are here to dive into the headlines, which uh, increasingly sanctions and these and these international trade issues dominate the headlines. And, and also just, I think, kind of weird, interesting stuff that we want to talk about. So that's that broadly speaking, I think what we're going to be covering kind of on each episode. And um, I'll let Tim say a few words and then we'll, we'll get right to it. So we're going to talk about what's interesting to us. And if it's interesting to you, great. And if it's not, then, you know, we'll just listen to this while we talk and you can go listen to something else. And we can recommend a lot of good baseball podcasts that you can a go lot listen of to good, instead. But, yeah. but I'm really sorry about Mookie. Yeah. We're going to talk about what sanctions should be imposed on the Boston Red Sox at the end of the program. So don't worry about that. Um, so with that, why don't we just uh, dive right in? Um, we're going to, um, and I'll just say the format here generally, and we may tinker with this, but for today, what we're going to do is we're going to cover a handful of topics in some detail. Um, we'll go back and forth on that, and then we're going to have a bit of a lightning round where we're going to hit a few things real quick just to give quick takes on those, and then we're going to we're going to wrap up and move on to part two. So with that, I'm going to hand it to Tim to get us started. All right. So one of the, you know, one of the best things about kind of working on sanctions issues is that anytime there's something in the news, anytime there's something coming out of the White House, usually, uh, at least recently, if it has to do with foreign policy, there is a U.S. sanctions aspect to it. And one of the areas where that has happened most often recently is Iran. So when President Trump ran for office, one of his promises was to undo the nuclear deal that President Obama entered into where Iran had agreed and, and was verifiably freezing its nuclear development program or nuclear weapons program, and in exchange, the U.S. had lifted what are called secondary sanctions against Iran, so sanctions that had no U.S. connection, um, but that had, had essentially told uh, people outside the U.S. that if they dealt with Iran, the U.S. would impose sanctions on them, and those, those were list, lifted as part of the nuclear deal, but President Trump uh, ran for us office, called that a terrible deal. Uh, about two years into office, he backed the United States out of the deal. And so since then, the secondary sanctions that were uh, in place before the nuclear deal have gone back into place. And uh, not surprisingly, the relationship with Iran, uh, between Iran and the U.S. has become worse. And so recently, uh, you know, one of the areas of tension in that relationship is the, the, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Um, the U.S. position is that the Revolutionary Guard has done a lot of bad things. 
responsible for a lot of the trouble in that region. And so uh, back in the beginning of January, the, the United States uh, killed the leader of the Revolutionary Guard, a, a guy named Qasem uh, Soleimani, General Soleimani. Um, and in retaliation for that, uh, he was killed in Iraq. And uh, the Iraqis threatened to kick the United States out of Iraq. Um, the U.S. threatened to put sanctions on Iraq. Um, the U.S. also, uh, Iran was upset. The Iran struck back at the U.S. The U.S. put sanctions on Iran. They at so, least struck back is a strong term. Maybe they, right. they, there's a show of right. force, at least a token show of force they, to come back. Right. right. They bombed a, a U.S. military uh, installation. Or but Adjacent to. But yeah. it was adjacent to, and, and nobody was nobody was hit. Thank goodness. Um, but in response to that, uh, there was some question about whether the U.S. would then strike back again. Uh, instead, what it did was it imposed more sanctions on Iran, and these are more secondary sanctions. Um, new United, a new executive order came out. Uh, it, it imposed sanctions against the, uh, the three sectors, three new sectors, um, the the. What are they? The construction, construction mining. mining, and manufacturing. Oh, and, and textiles. So four, four new yeah. sectors, um, and and we'll, we can talk a little bit about what that means because that was kind of pitched as the you know the toughening of these sanctions. But you know, in the in the, the run up to uh, that incident, the U.S. had already tightened uh, secondary sanctions. Not only did they put back what Obama had in place, but they also uh, added sanctions on the Iranian iron sec sector, the steel sector, the aluminum sector, the copper sector, the financial sector. So pretty much petrol petroleum, petroleum had always been part of it. And, yeah. and the financial sector, too, right. had been huge sanctions. So there wasn't much left. left to sanction in Iran. And I guess what we can talk about first, Brian, is, is kind of what what is this going to mean? Is this going to be much worse on Iran, or is it going to change things, or what? Yeah, I, I think for so for a little bit of context, and I should say as we're getting started here, we're generally presuming a, a knowledgeable audience. We'll give a little background as we dive into each item, but we're generally presuming that uh, folks are familiar with the topics and the acronyms and all the rest that we're going to be throwing around. Um, with re when the sanctions went back in place in 2018, um, as Tim said, there was the hitting all of these sectors across the Iranian economy that were really the revenue generators. And so as time has gone on, they have been picking off additional revenue generators for the government and for the IRGC. And so in terms of changing behavior, getting companies and individuals from Europe and Asia and other parts of the world who maybe were in Iran when the sanctions were rolled back, as we know and as we have seen extensively over the last couple of years, that has largely already happened. There right. is not much more business to drum out of Iran. Because of the money, right? Because of the because of the financial system, because you can't find banks. Banks will not do Iran business regardless of um, whatever uh, sort of good faith basis you might have to to claim it's, it's legal business, even under U.S. sanctions laws. And so adding these four sectors, um, you know, it is definitely, uh, you know, it's again, it's sort of closing down for gaps, perhaps, in the Iranian economy that were still there, um, where no doubt there were there were some non-U.S. business going on. However, I do think, um, you know, to the point Tim made, there wasn't much more room to elbow out a lot more business. This is 
much in the way that the Iranian retaliation after the killing of General Soleimani was largely symbolic. I view these as, you know, largely symbolic in a lot of ways. And um, we're still within the, the technically within the wind down period at the end of uh, the new executive order came out January 10. There's a 90 day wind down period. So nobody's going to be on the hook for these at the moment unless they're starting up new business in Iran in these sectors. Um, but, you know, I think the the long term consequences here very difficult to say this is going to move the needle much on anything based on what we've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, I mean, one of the things to think about in terms of secondary sanctions is that the the consequence if you get if you violate them is that you can get cut off from the U.S. financial system. Who does that matter to? Well, it, the the Western Europeans it matters to a lot. I mean, our inter, our economies are pretty interconnected, but the Chinese, the Russians, the Turks to some extent. Does it matter to them if they got cut off from the U.S. financial system? And that that is a, a big question. And, and part of the right. reason there's still, to the extent there's still business internationally in, in Iran, that's most of where it is. Yeah, and a lot of the, and, and something that we see all the time, too, is that in those countries, and especially this is the case with China, where there's a strong independent financial and banking system that can operate not completely disconnected from the U.S., but somewhat in, independently i think there is less of a, a less of a fear of these consequences and not to mention the fact that we we know very well that the chinese government the russian government will stand up to the us if they feel like they're getting pushed around and will retaliate with potentially some pretty significant measures so it, it is a different story in those parts of the world it is i think again to the extent that this is largely aimed at western europe and kind of us allies uh, or at least quasi or former allies or recently former allies, um, then, uh, you know, I think that that effect and that um, change in behavior has largely already been, um, has happened. So one more kind of loose end is that when this all happened, the Iraqis threatened to kick the U.S. out. Uh, the, the Trump administration responded, and, and it wasn't just President Trump, but it was others within Treasury were quoted in the Post as saying that there would be sanctions against Iraq. We haven't heard anything more about those sanctions. I, I, we could talk quickly about what they would have looked like or right. what they will look like if any of that takes place. Right. I mean, kind of a fascinating exercise just to think that, you know, Iraq that's by all measures a U.S. ally would be sanctioned for, you know, threatening or actually acting upon this, uh, you know, notion of kicking out the U.S. troops um, in retaliation for the, this activity um, as Tim said, I think the talk of this is, seems to have died down, at least for the moment. I think the options here, a couple things to think about. So there is a standing Iraq sanctions program. It largely dates back to the Saddam Hussein regime, and the, most of the sanctions still in the book and most of the people still on the SDN list date back to his his time in, in power. Um, so if they were going to expand that, issue a new executive order or something like that, it would really be starting from scratch almost. I think i think we both agree that the more likely measure would be they do something under the iran program perhaps taking aim at the iraqi financial institution the iraqi government officials who were spearheading any of these efforts things like that that would really create some chaos in iraq yeah i mean so it, similar thing happened a couple of months ago when um the the Turkish army did some things in Syria that yeah. the U.S. wasn't crazy about. Yeah. And the headlines were that we were imposing sanctions on Turkey, but we weren't really. What we did was we sanctioned some Turkish 
entities under the Syrian sanctions that were already in place. And I think it's, it, the exact same thing would happen here is that if, if the U.S. decided to sanction Iraq, it would either go after Iraqi government actors who made the decision to kick the U.S. troops out, or, or I think you're exactly right, Iraqi financial institutions that have uh, you know, deep ties with Iran, if they went on the sanctions list, that would really create some economic chaos in Iraq, but it would be part of the Iran program. Right, right, and I think that would be part of the, the sort of bubble of, you know, uh, sort of uh, tightening things in Iran and making it more, even more difficult to do any sort of business. And uh, even the, I think we're, it's well known. I think there's still business happening kind of in adjacent countries that is really Iran business, and so this would sort of go to that issue as well. So. Um, I, I think I think that's about all we have to cover on Iran now. I think, not surprisingly, I wouldn't be. I would think we'll probably be covering some Iran-related topic on every podcast we do because this is issue number one for this administration, and and it just never seems to be far from the top of the headlines. So um, let's let's leave that there and, and move on to to item number two. Um, so number two is I think the second it's the 1b to the 1a of iran um when it comes to sanctions and uh, trade controls which is china and specifically huawei the chinese telecom giant um so there's huawei is constantly in the news these days whether it's um, pushing forward with its 5g technology uh foreign countries looking at um banning or welcoming huawei into their uh infrastructure um, all the various lawsuits that Huawei is involved in here in the States, the criminal cases that are uh, pending against Huawei and Huawei executives, and we'll touch on that again later. Um, but the, the thing that I, we want to talk about today is the, uh, what was rumored, and I don't think rumored, but what was about to happen uh, a few weeks ago. This is, we're recording this on Friday, February 7. Uh, in mid-January, it was pretty well known and well circulated around Washington that there were... Um, more uh, restrictions coming on Huawei pursuant to their uh, entity listing. And so Huawei was added to the entity list back in May of 2019. So nothing subject to the um, EAR um, jurisdiction that can be exported out of the U.S. Uh, to Huawei, um, subject to the general license uh, licenses that are in place and some other caveats. Um, so generally speaking, at a broad level, Huawei cut off from controlled U.S. technology with, with certain caveats. Um, the, uh, the new rules that were apparently about to be put in place were going to take down what's known as the de minimis rule from 25% U.S. content to 10% U.S. content, which would mean uh, a lot more uh, technology would be captured by the restrictions and so make it that much tougher for Huawei to get U.S. technology in U.S. items, and what's known as the direct product rule was going to be expanded beyond its typical bounds, which are just related to sort of national security controls to capture everything uh, subject to the EAR. So it was going to be a massive expansion of the restrictions on Huawei. And this rule, which was a, sort of first hinted at publicly by the, um, some Commerce Department officials in late 2019, was teed up, was... All the reports were that it was at OMB, it was ready to go, and as reported in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, um, it hit the it hit a roadblock at the eleventh hour when the Department of Defense apparently objected, um, as as is the case with these rules, other U.S. agencies get to review them and concur, non-concur, and DoD apparently, according to the report, non-concurred, objected, 
because they said, look, if we tighten these rules on Huawei, it's going to be so damaging to U.S. technology interests and U.S. providers. It's going to be not only is it going to be a huge economic hit, but it's going to stifle innovation and uh, development of new technology. And so we we can't agree to that. So that's that's what has happened very recently. So before we go on to what may happen next, what what are your sort of first initial thoughts on on all that? So, I mean, I think to understand what's going on with Huawei, I mean, my initial thought is it's a mess. And, and to understand why I think it's such a mess, you have to go back to ZTE, another Chinese telecom company that got in trouble with the U.S. Um, for sending uh, U.S. goods in the, in the form of uh, ZTE phone products to Iran. Huawei's been accused of doing the same thing. I mean, that's what started this mess. And so Huawei, uh, with, with ZTE, what the U.S. government did is that they put ZTE on what's called the entity list, the Commerce Department list that restricts ZTE's access to U.S. origin goods, that the ZTE phones were being made with a lot of U.S. origin goods, just like the Huawei phones. So when Huawei got in trouble for the same thing, the U.S. puts Huawei onto the, uh, the entity list and assumes that Huawei will kind of come to, you know, come to heel just like ZTE had come to heel. And so ZTE basically played ball with the U.S. government, entered into a settlement, you know, took its medicine, multi-billion dollar medicine, kept taking its medicine. And I think the thinking was Huawei will do the same thing. Huawei hasn't done anything of the sort. They've done the opposite. They've done exactly <laughs> the opposite. And so what they've done is, first of all, they got wind that this was coming, and so they stockpiled all sorts of U.S. goods, at least reportedly. And so they have this big kind of, you know, they, they have this big store. Like they're like survivalists sitting out in China with this big stockpile of U.S. goods so that they can weather the storm. And then they they were able to take advantage of the de minimis rules, which you were just talking about, which essentially say if less than 25% of your, your product is made from U.S. goods, it's not a U.S. good, so that they, would, they, they could get U.S. products. Um, as long as they were, you know, protected by the de minimis rule, and so it really hasn't outside the U.S. Right, yeah. and so it really hasn't affected Huawei at all in the way that that it did affect ZTE. They also, by the way, announced record profits at the end of last year, which right. was a nice kind of middle finger to the U.S. government. It's like eighteen yeah. billion dollars or something that I saw. I mean, so it's so so they've been doing just fine, and I think that 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 has has shocked people in Congress. I think it shocked the Commerce Department. And I think they're all scratching their heads thinking, well, so what are we going to do about, about Huawei? And even there, when they came up with this, you know, way to tr try and tighten the screws, Close the loophole, so to speak. Yeah. apparently industry rebelled through the de Defense Department to such an extent that they couldn't even close the screws on it because U.S. industry was so upset that they've, they're, they're, they're selling so much to Huawei, which I guess is where it's getting its $18 billion, that we can't even tighten the screws anymore on Huawei, and Huawei has not seemed to feel going on the entity list much at all. Right, and so I think there's... A couple of other things to sort of think about and consider here for anybody who's got Huawei issues or Huawei on the brain. We get a lot of Huawei questions, so um, I wouldn't be surprised if this is this is one that a lot of people are thinking about right now. Um, so there's a couple of ways I think that this could go. So for now, I think one one key takeaway here, as far as we know, this is only temporary off the table. This is it's not as if this is not coming. This closing, so-called closing of the loophole. From what I, we are hearing, it very much could come back at some point and could come back pretty soon. That's number one. Number two, something worse or harsher with respect to Huawei and possibly even other 
entity list parties or Chinese companies could also be coming. Now, whether that's a broadening of that loophole closing that would affect a whole variety of different uh, companies, not just Huawei, that's we've heard as a possibility. Um, there's also always been some rumors or some concern or some thought that at some point they would use, the government would use IEPA authorities to right. go after Huawei, which is basically they're either going to put them on the SDN list and based on the, the allegations of their Iran conduct and other things, they're, you know, they probably have enough to do that if they really wanted to, or at least attempt to do that. Um, I'm sure there would be a fight and a court battle over that. Um, or they were, there was a time when it was even being discussed that there would be new authorities and new measures taken that are kind of made from whole cloth. And those are still being discussed as far as we know. So this is, this is a, it, it's hard to overstate how, um, I think important this issue is in the U.S. government right now, across, like all across the board, from Congress to the White House to the agencies, everybody. So, this is not going away. This is likely not going to get better or easier to navigate anytime soon. And if it, anything, it's probably going to get more complicated before it gets any clearer how how to sort of manage supply chains, deal with these types of issues as they arise. Um, in real time. Yeah, I mean, and just so so folks at home can kind of see what's going on here. So so the the entity list, which is what Huawei's on now, what ZTE list was on, or ZTE was on uh, before, is is a is a list that restricts access to U.S. origin goods. It's it's a punishment, but it but it is a limited punishment because you can do even U.S. persons can do anything else with Huawei. They just can't sell them U.S. origin goods. There's, there's worse lists, and the, the main one being the, the OFAC SDN list, the specially designated national list. That would restrict any dealing with a company like Huawei. By and U.S. persons. By U.S. persons, and sometimes even beyond U.S. persons. And so, so Brian and I have talked about this for a while. I mean, what if Huawei got put on the SDN list? Now, one possibility is that that would bring Huawei to heel in the way that it brought ZTE to heel. On the other hand, you know, the, the SDN list essentially says you're cut off from the U.S. financial system, and so people can either deal with you or deal with the U.S. financial system. And usually, and almost always, the, the U.S. has won that battle and because companies want to stay within the U.S. financial network more than they want to deal with somebody on the SDN list. But would that happen with Huawei? Who knows? Right, and this is complicated also by the fact that, of course, the U.S. views Huawei as just an extension or an arm of the Chinese government. There would be that whole aspect of it that would play into this. It would also be complicated, obviously, by the ongoing trade negotiations and the trying to re resolve the tariff situation and many of the other measures that are um, being talked about constantly between the U.S. and China. And, and we're going to touch upon that again in, in a little while. So it, it is incredibly complicated. That's not to, we haven't even scratched the surface on the number of Huawei-related right. issues, measures, laws, uh, regulations. Lots of material for future podcasts. Exactly. So I think let's let's end there. Um, keep an eye on that. I'm sure, certain, 100%, that we will be back to Huawei at some point before too long. So with that, why don't we... Why don't we take Move things on. up to our third right. favorite topic? I was going to say, so it's not Russia. Iran and it's not Huawei, which it's, is kind of Iran-China. It's Russia. It's Russia. So, so the, the, the third item that we wanted to talk about were the new sanctions. They kind of flew a little bit under the radar that uh, Congress passed as part of the National Defense Authorization Act back in, in mid-late December. Um, 
on the Nord Stream pipeline, and I think to understand kind of what these sanctions involve, you kind of have to look, you have to, geography matters a lot and maps matter a lot. So currently, and for a long time, the way that Russian natural gas had gotten to Europe is through Ukraine. And so uh, you, you, the, the gas would go through Europe, the U Ukrainians would transport it, they would sometimes refine it. The, it, it actually, uh, moving Russian natural gas accounts for about 4% of Ukrainian GDP. So it is a big deal in Ukraine. Russia, back in 2014, went in and invaded Crimea and, and Ukraine and is currently at war with Ukraine, and that's where the Russia sanctions originally came from, was because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and Crimea. And so, so uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia are not in a good place right now, and Russia has decided that it would prefer to send its natural gas to Europe some other way. And so what it has done, uh, first with the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and then now with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, is build these huge pipelines that run through the Baltic. So they run, you know, they run from St. Petersburg, basically, to Hamburg in Germany. On a future episode, maybe we'll have like a digital right. behind can, us that we can use a laser pointer for, but right now we're keeping exactly. it low. We're Our map low skills are yeah. pretty low tech at this point. But, but so there's a pipeline that goes through the Baltic, and it is basically intended to pass by Ukraine. Now, there are other reasons for it, um, and, and I'm sure that that the, the Russians would explain it differently and the Germans would explain it differently. But that's that's really kind of the battle that's going on right now is that there is this Nord Stream pipeline that the Russians are trying to use to get around Ukraine. And that's not very popular, particularly in the US Congress. So back in 2017, the Congress passed a law called CATSA, the Countering Americans uh, Adverse Through, through Sanctions, Sanctions Act. Act. Yeah. Right. So cats it just roll it just rolls just up the right tongue. right it's exactly amazing. it is yeah. very smooth like butter so so cats was passed in 2017 it, the, it made headlines because it essentially froze the Russian sanctions in place because there were rumors that newly elected President Trump was going to repeal some of the Russian sanctions but it also increased the sanctions and made a lot of headlines because it, it created what was called an oligarch list or it asked it, it, it directed the Secretary of Treasury to create an oligarch list. Treasury created an oligarch list and then um, Congress kind of pressured the Treasury Secretary to uh, start putting oligarchs and their companies onto the OFAC SDN list, which was a big deal and it, it had a, a huge uh, uh, effect on, on the world economy, particularly with respect to aluminum. But those sanctions were seen as pretty successful. Another part of CATSA uh, actually applied to pipelines and was designed to impose sanctions on the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream two pipelines to try and stop that pipeline from being built. And what the sanctions then did was give the president the discretion, no requirement, but the discretion to impose sanctions on companies that engaged in significant transactions relating to those pipelines. No one, to my knowledge, has been sanctioned under that part of CATSA. It's section 232 of CATSA. So that didn't work. So, so in December, um, Congress, uh, kind of responding to this concern that Ukraine was being bypassed, passed a new law that's called PISA. <laughs> so, <laughs> Protecting Europe's Energy Security Act, very, PISA. Very good. Very it's part, good. Of the, part, part of the the National Defense Authorization Act. What PISA does is it requires, kind of like the oligarch list, it now requires a vessels that are providing support for Nord Stream 2 list. So the, so the Secretary of State now has to create this list. It's going to be the vessel 
support list. It's supposed to be coming in a week or two. Yeah, pretty another soon. ten days. Yeah. And then then once if you're on that list, you automatically get sanctioned. So you automatically get become subject to some sorts of, of sanctions unless the president waives the, the sanctions and goes to Congress and explains why the president's waiving the sanctions. So so it's kind of a big deal, um, especially since nothing has happened the first time they tried to, to stop Nord Stream 2. Um, but the, 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 the problem, and then I'll kick it over to you to talk about this, Brian, is that Nord Stream 2 was almost finished, as I understand it. And right. so it's, it's, uh, there's some question about whether or not by the time this takes effect, it'll be done. Right, whether this is too little too late. Uh, I think that's exactly right. And um, I, I mean, we do know that when the, so when PISA was passed, when the Nord Stream 2 sanctions were passed in December, certainly a couple of companies came out and said, we're stopping, right? And made that very clear. And, and in fact, there was a, I think it's written in, to the um, to the text of the law that you know if you stop within thirty days essentially that's your wind down period and and that's then you'll be fine so uh, that that's now passed obviously and it remains to be seen who else is still acting on behalf of the pipeline who who's providing these vessels and it's a very it's a precise formulation about constructing the pipeline selling leasing providing or helping to evade the sanctions that are now in place so. It, this list, if it's coming on time, which we should never count on the U.S. government to do anything on time, will be pretty fascinating, and then we'll see sort of what happens thereafter. And to Tim's point, I think the the jury is definitely out as to whether or not this is going to make any difference or whether it's sort of too far along at this point, and, um, it, you know, this is just too little too late. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, one, the one thing to kind of keep in mind with this, too, is that even though I, I think kind of the, the motivations in terms of Ukraine wants one thing, and uh, and kind of the U.S. wants another, and Russia wants another. And Germany wants and, another. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, is yeah. Europe is just wildly divided right. on this, and so you can't. Europe doesn't speak at all with one voice. Right. Germany, as I understand it, really wants this Nord Stream two to be finished because the pipeline is running straight from Russia to Germany. So instead of having you know, Russian natural gas go through Ukraine and wherever else it has to go through to get to Germany. It's going straight to Germany through the Baltic. I mean, it's it's there's no middleman anymore, and so they they will have a much um, a, a much more direct supply of Russian nat natural gas. The Baltic states, I think, are are somewhat supportive, but I think how supportive they are depends upon how much oil or how much natural gas they have on their own. And as I understand it, the UK is very opposed to Nord Stream Two, not really because it's worried about the the Russia pipeline to Europe, but I think more because they would prefer in the UK that the Germans buy their natural gas and right. not get it from Russia. Right. So it's really, I mean, the motivations on this are really kind of very complicated. Yeah. So I think the key, the key thing again is watch for the report uh, to Congress, which is coming soon, should be coming soon, and thereafter, you know, things may start happening pretty fast. So, um, and, and like I said, I mean, I think this is. It's sort of like Huawei, there's a perhaps a misimpression that anybody who has anything to do with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is potentially in the crosshairs. I mean, the Katza provisions made that at least theoretically a possibility, but this is this is a very narrow this is very narrow. It's vessels and it's just for construction. And so, you know, we wouldn't expect there to be, you know, hundreds of names on this list, and and so it'll be very interesting to see who is and and sort of how this plays out. Well, and one of the one of the possibilities I was just talking with someone with about an hour ago was, well, what if the Russians then go buy up all the ships? 
Now, the people, <laughs> the people who sold them the ships could theoretically be, be right. sanctioned, but, but the Russians w really won't care if, if they're the ones who get sanctioned. Fair, fair point. That would be a, an all-time sanctions evasion ploy. So that, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if they'll try something like that. Um, okay, so let's, let's leave that for now, and then let's move on to our last uh, main topic for this episode, which is, again, in, in keeping with sort of trying to do a, a roundup generally of some major things that happened at the very end of 2019 and that have happened so far in 2020, uh, again, calling back to um, December of, of last year to touch on something that was released just before the holidays, and that's the um, revised guidance from the Justice the Department's National Security Division regarding voluntary disclosures and sanctions and export control cases. So um, in the interest of full disclosure, I am an alum of NSD and actually worked on the original version of these when they were drafted and released back in 2016. So I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of history with the, with the guidance. But what they've done now is they've revamped the disclosure guidance and it's pretty clear uh, and I'll cover kind of some key details and then we'll sort of talk about whether we think this is going to have any, what effect, if any, this may have. It's pretty clear that this is, they've tried to tighten this up to, you know, really proactively encourage more disclosures. And I think the, um, you know, the first attempt that was made back in 2016, I think there were, uh, not to get into too much inside baseball, but I would say that perhaps the results were a bit mixed in terms of um, the types of disclosures. And I think there was a feeling or a hope that like DOJ's fraud section for anybody out there who is familiar with how that works, that, you know, there's a culture of disclosure to the fraud section on anti-corruption FCPA issues. Uh, and I think this was tr attempting to replicate that and attempting to replicate something akin to what we see uh, all to or all the time with respect to OFAC, BIS, DDTC, the other administrative agencies in the export and sanction space, which is um, a lot of disclosures and a lot of quick and early disclosures, no matter sort of how serious the violation or maybe even how trivial the violation may be. So that's, I think, clearly what they're going for. Um, again, I think results to date mixed. So the new policy, though, puts in place a couple of things, and I'll, I'll sort of run the, through these quickly and then throw this over to Tim. So what it now does is it makes clear that if you disclose, you cooperate, and you remediate, um, and disclosure here means disclosure to the National Security Division. That's very clear. Not to any other aspect of uh, the Justice Department or the U.S. government. You would be entitled to a non-prosecution agreement, NPA, and no fine, ultimately. If, for some reason, the um, conduct is of a, you know, a severity that there would have to be some kind of fine imposed, then you would still be entitled to a 50% haircut on that fine, and there would be no monitor imposed. And these are... And this has all been made much more concrete. The way the guidance was written the first time, it was much more kind of directional, uh, and it was a little was a little less uh, committal in terms of what the actual benefits would get would be. Um, the second key piece or key change is that um, it's the new guidance is very clear that disclosures of willful conduct to other agencies of the U.S. government will not qualify for um, voluntary disclosure credit. And then the last thing is that it's clear that this is trying to harmonize the NSD guidance with um, changes recently to the, the Justice Manual or what used to be known as the U.S. Attorney's Manual and also the FCPA enforcement policy, which was just revised last year. So in light of all that, um, the big question that I'll start with is, do we think this is enough to change behavior and to actually incentivize more disclosures to DOJ's National Security Division? 
Uh, enough, probably not, but but better. I think it it is. So so, I, I think to to kind of explain why I think it's it's better, but why it's not enough. You start with the the proposition that the the the, the VSD policy from 2016, designed to encourage voluntary disclosures, was was really done in at least in part from really good motives to try and harmonize the the export control practice with kind of long-standing principles in the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act practice. So the FCPA cases had a really kind of well-developed body of what would happen with the voluntary disclosure, what would qualify, what sorts of leniency you would get. And I think the 2016 policy was, was designed to bring that into line. Now the problem was that and this was weird for me when I started this practice. I mean, I'm coming to this from a, from a background as a public defender. And the idea that you would go in and make mistakes and then go tell the government on yourself was something that was very foreign to me. But, but there really was this expectation in the, the export controls and sanctions bar that you just always reflexively disclosed everything. And so you'd find a problem and you'd disclose it. And part of the reason that you would do that is because the administrative agencies would really try to separate the wheat from the chaff very quickly, it would be kind of a painless pro process unless there was a really, really bad case. And so there was this, this, this kind of culture of automatic disclosure. And the, the, the DOJ policy came in against that where it essentially said, you've also got to disclose to the, to the criminal authorities at the same time. And I think the, the export and sanctions bar was like, whoa, 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 this is getting a lot more serious than it used to be. And so I think at least initially, there was a big kind of culture of resistance to that. And because there weren't a lot of concrete incentives in the first policy, and to be fair, they didn't really exist anywhere at the time. Right. When you're making the decision whether to voluntarily disclose, you've got this like, well, if I disclose to the agency, I've got to also disclose to the Department of Justice and turn this into a federal criminal case, and that's not going to be cheap, even if it turns out to be good. Plus, I can't tell how much benefit I'm going to get from doing that. Right. Maybe I'm going to just going to keep this to myself. And so I do think that the, the initial policy kind of ran into that, and this is kind of a response to try and encourage more disclosure by saying, no, no, here's what you will get concretely if you disclose, which I think will help more disclosures. I also think the fact that three years or so have passed since the first one, people are st starting to get less hostile to it. They're starting to to think, okay, well, maybe I can work within this. Yeah, and just to, just to tease part two of this initial episode, we're actually going to talk about a very recent case that, where this was uh, front and center in terms of going in on a, on a voluntary basis to NSD and, and a, a company pretty clearly getting some benefit from that. Um, so let me let me throw a couple other thoughts at you before we wrap up this and then move on to uh, the lightning round. Um, so as I as I said at the end there, or as point number two, no credit if if disclosure of willful conduct is to the regulatory agency. There was a provision in the original guidance that sort of said if you make if you disclose either simultaneously around the same time somewhat contemporaneously, I can't remember the exact uh, language that will still count it as voluntary. This this seems to maybe move away from that a little bit. It also, I think, at least calls into a little bit of question sort of the practice that you're talking about, which is let's say company, let's say we have a client or company comes in and says, all right, we think we found uh, a sanctions violation. And it you know, we don't we don't know, it doesn't seem willful to us, we think, but we, we're in the process of investigating 
we think we want to go into OFAC and put in a placeholder voluntary disclosure while we tell them we're going to investigate. So we do that. Let's say we do that on uh, today, on February 7th. Let's say two months into that investigation, after doing some interviews, looking at documents, et cetera, we now think, oh, we have some employees who are actually doing some willful misconduct. And obviously the Justice Department at this point, as far as we know, knows nothing about this. We haven't had any formal communications. We haven't disclosed any of this. Do we run the risk that we go to them? We decide at that point, or what is the calculus, I guess, at that point if we say, well, do we go to DOJ, NSD at this point and say we think we actually have a, uh, a willful violation? Or do we stick on the OFAC-only track and sort of hope that we can work it through with them and that they're never going to refer it over to the DOJ? I think that's a very Those real... Those are the hard cases. That's a very real scenario that yeah. we have certainly experienced yep. and that I think people will... They'll have to be making judgment calls as they go and depending on the facts and how they're looking, how things are looking and just sort of weighing cost and benefit as to what you do when you hit that fork in the road. Yeah, I mean, those are the ones those are the ones that I think are the are still the hardest cases under the new policy, because what you used to do before the policy was in place is you would go to OFAC or you would go to BIS and you would say, OK, this this conduct was not willful. But here's a few facts that we still don't think rise to willfulness. But if you do. Here's why you should go easy on us, even though you might find that it's willful. You can't make that argument anymore, because if you make that argument and they find that it's willful, and then they refer it over to DOJ and say, this was willful sanctions evasion, or this was willful you know, exporting to an without a license, you, you now don't get any credit under the DOJ policy. So you used to go to the civil regulators and try and make your willfulness case knowing that you had to disclose the facts of willfulness, but you could make the arguments. Now you, you pretty much have to disclose. Now. And admit willfulness. Yeah. Which disclosure. Is, which is a hard thing. And I don't know that that's something that we would ever recommend uh, one of our clients do. But as we well know, even if you get to a point where you're sort of, you're in, you're in front of a, you're in front of DOJ, you're in front of an agency, sort of a, you know, because of a subpoena, because of some other reason that you didn't intend to be there. I mean, if you if a choice is made at a certain point, like, okay, now we need to cooperate, now we need to, you know, remediate aggressively and be very proactive, you can there's still some credit to be gained. It's not like you will get zero credit. You will not get the full credit that the policy would entail to you. So right. that's also something to keep in mind is that there, it's not a black and white either or necessarily it ends up being a very nuanced question, and, and I think it's a very it's it's largely depends on the on the circumstances. Right. I mean the the big thing the big thing that it takes away, or at least kind of makes a lot harder, is to just argue that a that a matter is not criminal, without almost at the same time conceding it's criminal. Right. Because once you you know you what you used to want to do is you used to want to argue to the regulators that it wasn't criminal, and you would still get the benefit of a voluntary disclosure even if they found out that it was. But now if you make that argument. You certainly can't at the same time go disclose to the DOJ that this is a willful criminal violation, right. because if you've done that, you, you know you're wasting your breath. You've already conceded that it's willful. Unless, so. unless you're, yeah, you might be caveating that to do right, that to death, but it's just but hard yeah, to do exactly. So, um, and then the last point I want to end on before we we move on, um, the other interesting thing um, in the original policy, there was a uh, sort of explicit carve out for um, cases that sort of fell under what at the time was AFMILS, the Asset Forfeiture and Money Laundering Section, which has now been rebranded as the as MLARS, the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section. We, we deal in lots of silly acronyms all the time. So um, it, it drives us a little crazy. Yeah, CATSA. Um, so 
that is now that sort of explicit carve out is gone. But and that and I saw in the reporting right after this came out, a lot of people made a big deal about that. However, the policy is very clear. This applies only to the National Security Division. It applies only to disclosures made to them in cases that they are uh, in charge of, essentially. And as we know, MLARS has jurisdiction, even though NSD has the ultimate sort of approval authority on this under the Justice Manual, MLARS does a lot of the big bank cases, a lot of the big bank sanctions cases, and historically has done that and has done some of them very recently. And so if you uh, are in a situation where you have a big, um, you know, you have a potential big sanctions uh, violation that might fall under MLR's jurisdiction. How does this? How does this? Right. Will uh, you get how, the automatic credit? Will you get that? Do you go to both of them at the same time? Do you? How do you sort of manage that? So those are th- that's a little bit of a because it's clear that MLR's is not uh, is not beholden to this guidance. They can they could theoretically do whatever they want. Um, and so uh, you know it'll be interesting when you have some of those cases. I, as I have said before, I'm certain that if you went into NSD, they would be happy to. They would be happy to say that that big bank sanctions case was theirs rather than MLR's, you know, not to get too catty about the sort of turfiness of Justice Department um, sections, but I'm sure that would be the case. But in any event, that's a, a another bit of tension that might need to get sort of sorted out or people will have to feel out as they as they bring these cases in. Yeah, I mean, the first time that you, you know, you disclose to NSD and then MLR's comes in and you don't get the credit... Uh, that'll get sorted out or at least even if that starts to get threatened i think it'll get sorted out like i said out. i'm sure that nsd would be happy to say all respect to my my friends at nsd that they'll be happy to say that case is theirs and that they'll make sure yep. that you get your credit um okay so with that i think that that sort of run that sort of takes care of sort of our major topics those sort of run down of major topics we're going to hit um today um we are uh we're now going to turn to uh, sort of a portion that we're going to refer to as the lightning round which um, we are going to um, basically try. This is, as I alluded to before, when I said that we want to also touch on things that we just kind of find interesting that are a little weird. Um, these are things we're going to try to just do very quick thoughts on these. We're not going to dive in as we have with some of these other topics. These could be things we come back to some other time uh, in the future, but um, for for our purposes, we're just going to hit these quick because we wanted to uh, sort of save you know, give a few quick thoughts on them. So, so I'll get us started and I'll, and I'll go with number one, which we've already touched on a little bit, which is just phase one of the U S China trade deal. And so there's obviously a lot to be said on this. All I really want to know for our purposes today, do we think that the signing of the phase one of the deal, which just happened two weeks ago or yeah, a little over two weeks ago, is that going to change anything with respect to export control or sanctions enforcement targeting China? Do you think no. go fast? No. Okay, that's a great that's a great answer. Very very concise. Um, I think also one 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 last thought on this is, uh, you know, the coronavirus sweeping through China and everything else going on right now. I don't know if that could slow certain things. I don't know if that's going to have anything to do with what's going on with Huawei. I don't know if that's going to have anything to do with anything else that might get rolled out. But if anybody's watching as, as what's happening now, this is. This is building and getting more serious, and maybe that would possibly 
caused the U.S. government to take their foot off the pedal with respect to China? Uh, with this administration, I don't know necessarily, but also one th- one other thing to consider. Yeah, no, I don't think it'll, that that the trade deal will stop anything. But I, I definitely think I definitely think that the the attitude toward China, you know, on the import export side, could change with coronavirus. It could change with when U.S. manufacturers complain that they're they're losing China sales. I right. mean, there's all, all sorts of things that could change it, but right. it's not going to be the trade deal. Yep. All right, let's go on to number two. All right, so um, number two is at the end of January, January 29th, the U.S. imposed uh, sanctions against, I think, eight people and uh, one entity in, uh, in Crimea. And, and we talked earlier about kind of the, dis- the dispute that led to U.S. sanctions against Crimea. Crime- there's an embargo against Crimea at this point. The, the question that I have is, so with respect to all of the sanctions, they were opposed against, you know, so-called actors um, in the the so-called Republic of Crimea, because Crimea has has become a separate republic according to the to the Russians, and so you know the U.S. position is that it is still part of Ukraine, and so um, what what was the point of these designations, and what was the point of of essentially ridiculing the <laughs> Republic of Crimea in the designation? Yeah, so real quick, so Tim's use of so-called is purposeful because in the press release announcing these sanctions, they the Treasury Department used it about seventy four times. Um, literally, it was like a drinking game. It, yeah, it was like the Onion wrote this this press release. It was it was kind of ridiculous. So, um, the short answer is I, I'm not sure. Things have been relatively quiet other than the Nord Stream 2 stuff on the Russia front recently. Um, so it's always so difficult to to decide uh, or and to decipher what's really going on there. So hard to say and and I think stay tuned. It, this is this feels to me like sort of ro- low-hanging fruit and and they just sort of took a shot at, at the, these folks and it's probably been in the queue for some time. That's my guess. The one other thing I'll mention real quick is that this was done um, in a coordinated effort between the U.S., EU, and Canada, who all impose sanctions on these same actors, essentially simultaneously, um, that's not something you see very often. So that's pretty notable. Um, and this is, in fact, kind of one area where those those countries and those uh, EU region is um, are pretty synced up still with respect to Crimea. So. Yeah, I mean, that's increasingly rare, and and I'll just I'll just sort of leave it at that. That's yeah, something the, noteworthy. No, I mean that to me is is the the only really important part of this. The the petulant language that was used in the press release was kind of more fun, but the fact that the the fact that you've got the U.S. and the, its allies working together, uh, particularly in Crimea, is both interesting and I. I they they didn't really explain very well why they were taking this action when they were taking it. I'll be curious to hear as that kind of leaks out what, right. what's really going on yep. here. All right. And so moving on now to topic three and trying to keep with uh, this is lightning speed for us. We're going to try to get better over time, but we talk a lot. So last topic in the lightning round for today uh, is uh, Venezuela. We haven't touched on Venezuela yet today. Um, we see a lot of Venezuela issues. Uh, so recently, mid-January, there was the potential uh, or the attempted takeover of the National Assembly to block a vote. Uh, president Guaido, uh, or at least the recognized president of the U.S. and other countries, uh, and his uh, people were essentially blocked from being into the National Assembly. So very soon thereafter, sanctions come down on a number of the people, the, the uh, Maduro uh, um compatriots who were responsible for this. Um, so what do we make of this? 
um, and, and just sort of any general thoughts on Venezuela lately as, as that continues to be. President Guaido was at the State of the Union. What do we make of that? Um, just sort of general thoughts on that, those actions in, in Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, Venezuela is really interesting as it starts to develop because, you know, the, sa- the, the stated purpose of the sanctions against Venezuela is to change leadership, is to push out Maduro and bring in President Guaido and um, and there's a couple of things that are interesting about that. One is it, it's really been supported outside the U.S. It is another kind of multilateral sanctions policy where uh, the EU and Canada are also in support of, of what the U.S. is doing there. That's that's really unusual because the EU and Canada are usually not in support of sanctions that are designed to, to drive out a, a government. And, 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 and sanctions and, don't usually work. And which that. historically, I should say, is when there's multilateral pr- pressure, that's when sanctions tend to work the best. Yeah. And, and, and increasingly, the U.S. has gotten away from that because of how we've positioned ourselves over the last couple of years. But the, but the other thing that's kind of interesting about this is that in the past, when the U.S. has tried regime change, um, it generally didn't have a viable alternative. It just basically said, you know, drive Castro out, drive the Iranian mullahs out. I mean, that's been the U.S. policy, but, you know, to the extent that they had another option, it wasn't really an option. It was some, it was often one that was created in the U.S. and might be viable from U.S. perspectives. But, but Guaido has his own base of support in Venezuela, and it's not just the U.S. that's pushing Guaido. It's, I mean, the, the, a number of countries, I think it's more than 50, have recognized Guaido as the, the rightful president of Venezuela. And so it'll be interesting to see if this Venezuela sanctions practice, because it's multilateral, because there is a, a viable alternative to Maduro, whether it works or not. Yep. All right. Well, in keeping with the spirit of the lightning round, we'll, we'll stop there. Um, well said. So uh, I think that's all we have for this episode um, we, I, I should say that, um, we're, we're going to be recording essentially part two of this episode, as we said at the beginning, um, which is going to be in the same way that we kind of took a survey of w- big activity that's happened in December and January, early February on kind of the sanctions policies, uh, front. Um, we're going to be focused in the second episode or part two on enforcement actions and recent interesting enforcement actions. We're calling it Enforcement Palooza. Um, and so that's going to be coming your way relatively soon uh, and is really going to be a continuation of, of this episode. I'm sure it's going to be hugely popular. Enforcement Palooza will yeah. be, it, there'll be version 12. And if you're I'm still sure listening at this point point. and you're not related to us and you don't work with us, then congratulations. We're incredibly grateful to you. This is, this has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please stay tuned for episode two. Like I said, that'll be coming uh, soon. And uh, until then, I hope everyone stays sanctions free. Bye. Bye. Bye.